to receive your word, to devour your word, and to allow your word, God, to reveal to us the deep and hidden things of God. Lord, you have searched us and you have found us, God. We search you and we seek you and we desire to find you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. And the church says, amen. Where do you turn for wisdom? Where do you seek the answers to life's questions that seemingly pervade you? It could be matters of great importance, like what happens after I die. Or it can be matters simply as, where is the money going to come for next week? But where do you turn for answers? Has anybody ever had a sleepless night before? Anybody? Raise your hands. Let's see it. Anybody ever had a sleepless night before? Okay. This side over here, you guys sleep good. 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 I want a little bit of that. Um... This side, well, I'll talk to you all. <laughs> now, I'm sure we've all had a sleepless night before, haven't we? Nights where maybe our kids are keeping us awake, maybe the dog's barking, maybe we've got a stomach bug and it's just keeping us awake and we can't fall asleep or we're coughing or we're sneezing. But maybe we're anxious. Maybe we're worried. Maybe we don't know what tomorrow brings. One of the things that is pervasive in all humanity is that we don't know what we don't know, right? There's a lot of things in this world that we don't know. And King Nebuchadnezzar was included in this. There were some things that he didn't know that he didn't know. And then he had a dream. And then he realized, oh, I know some things that I don't know. There's some things in this world that King Nebuchadnezzar realized he didn't know. And it freaked him out. It says here in the passage that he was troubled. And King Nebuchadnezzar being troubled in his second year meant that the rest of the kingdom freaks out with him. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. The king commanded that the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. So there's a story that Daniel is telling us. And there's a little context that I believe is helpful for the story. Kings in this time period in the ancient Middle East would receive these dreams and they believed that these dreams were shadows of what was to come, a gateway into the future. And these dreams were a revelation of the gods that was a gift in order to help them stack the deck in their favor. So the more dreams that King Nebuchadnezzar could interpret, the more that he could stack the deck in order to stay in power longer. It tells us here that this is the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And so this means that Nebuchadnezzar is already freaking out. 
because he's seen kings and kingdoms come and go. And now he's at the top. And he knows. He knows historically that his kingdom will one day have an expiration date. And one of the things that he seeks to do is to control his own destiny. And the way he's trying to control his own destiny is to know the future, to know the things that he doesn't know. So this dream was given for a reason, and he wants to know the dream. And the king means business. He means business. He calls in his spiritual advisory board. And he summons the spiritual advisory board and he says, okay, I want you to tell me my dream and interpret it. Now, this was a different, this was a different scenario that has played out before. They've come before the king in the middle of the night, getting their sleepies out of their eyes and wondering what's going on. They've done that before, but typically the king tells them the dream and then they say, Oh, wise and mighty, majestic and glorious king. Blah, 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 blah. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want them to tell him what he wants to hear. Nebuchadnezzar wants the plain and simple truth. And so Nebuchadnezzar is on to these magicians, enchanters, sorcerers. He knows that they have the tendency to tell him what he wants to hear. And so he's saying, no, if you know the interpretation of the dream, then you should surely know the dream. And if you can't tell me the dream and the interpretation, I'm going to call you on your bluff and you will all lose your life and all of your families will suffer and die tonight. So the stakes are high. Now, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know the future. He needs wisdom. And the people he's seeking wisdom from are those who need wisdom. And so, if you can imagine with me that time period where they come together and they try to conspire and they try to seek out the gods and they consult the omens in their books and they try to seek one another with their crystal balls, even consulting the demons, and they realize that nobody can answer the king's matter. And that's where they come before the king again. And they say in verse 5, it says, The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word, from the, the, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid bare. And then they answer the king in verse 7 a, se- a second time. And they say, tell your servants the dream. They're hoping that somehow the king has something wrong that he forgot that in order for them to interpret the dream, they got to know the dream. And they say, tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. And they're freaking out. And they're just waiting for the king to burst. And the king says again, you're just trying to buy time. You've manipulated me. You lied to me. And because you can't give me the dream and the interpretation, you will die tonight. And I'm going to kill all of the wise men, all of my advisory council in Babylon because they're no good to me. And so he sends out the agents to go after the wise men of Babylon. He sends out his chief of staff and they go in 
to Daniel and his friends. And you can imagine being dragged out of your bed in the middle of the night. Now, it doesn't say here that Daniel was sleeping, but one can think that Daniel was likely sleeping. It's interesting how Daniel was sleeping and the king was troubled and awake. Because what you see here is Daniel answering the king through his chief of staff, Arioch, with wisdom and tact. This is the NIV version calls wisdom and tact. Here at verse 14, the ESV says, Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. All right. Now, if this is me, and somebody's dragging me out of the middle of the night, my whole family out in the middle of the night, and I've got a knife to my throat, I'm saying, wait, 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 wait. And I'm I'm absolutely screaming. I'm shocked. I am just waiting for this whole episode to be over. You probably have something wrong. But Daniel very confidently says to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, What's the problem? What's the problem? Why is the king's decree so urgent? Instead of trying to plead for his life, instead of trying to get out of this situation however he can, instead of begging them for mercy, what he does is he said, what is the problem? You know, a a gentle answer says the Proverbs turns away wrath. And what Daniel did in that moment was diffuse the situation. In all likelihood, Arioch knew who Daniel was, regarded Daniel as trustworthy. And so when Daniel asked him a question, Arioch listened. And he said, the king had a dream. And he doesn't know its interpretation. And the interpretation of that is the king is scared for his life and nobody can help him. And so everybody's going to die until somebody can help him. And Daniel knew what was at stake. He knew his life and the life of his friends was at stake in that moment. He knew that the whole welfare of all the wise men of Babylon was at stake in that moment and that there was going to be a bloodbath unless Daniel could do something about it. And very confidently, Daniel says to Arioch, make me an appointment with the king. I don't know if I would do that. Like, you sure you want to go in before the king? Like, he is ready for blood. And Daniel says to Arioch, make me an appointment with the king. Now, that requires some confidence, doesn't it? To be able to go before the king's guard... And say in a moment when he is ready to destroy the wise men of Babylon. Here it says that the king was very angry and furious. And to go before the king and say, I know what you don't know. And here's the thing. Daniel didn't know. He didn't know. Daniel was clued into something that God was going to come through for him. 
Daniel didn't know the answers right then. What we see in chapter 1 is that God gave Daniel and his friends this supernatural wisdom and understanding. We also see that God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the dreams, but Daniel still didn't know the dream or how to interpret it. But he trusted in the God who gave him the gift, and he knew in this time and in this place, God would use him. Now, what I want to see up to this point is, is something that I think is, is really important because there's some things that we can glean from this first part of this passage. Is that that first, there's what the world calls wisdom, and then there's what God calls wisdom. King Nebuchadnezzar is afraid for his life, and he is turning to anything and everything for answers. And so he's seeking worldly wisdom. Today, in our lives, it's real easy when we don't have the answers. Instead of looking up to God, we look to our left and to our right for answers. But what that is, is worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom. Have you ever sought wisdom outside of God and found that that wisdom was empty Maybe you didn't realize it in the moment. Maybe you, maybe you struggled to understand how your life could make sense and you were just grasping for something so you held on to it. And today there's much worldly wisdom. There was a, a number of people that the king consulted hoping to find answers for. Sorcerers, magicians, Chaldeans, enchanters. They were all their own little sects, and he hoped that he could somehow find from these little groups the answer, but yet they came up empty. Here's some of the worldly wisdom that I think we need to be aware of in our day and time, is one, all paths lead to wisdom. That's a lie. All paths lead to wisdom. If you want to find wisdom, everybody's got to seek it in their own way, and every way gets us to the same goal. That is worldly wisdom, and it leads to death. There's a, a, a belief today in modern Christianity that I think is, is being infiltrated by the world around us is that somehow Jesus is not the only way to God. He, he might be your way to God, but he's not my way to God. And if you say he's my way to God, then, then how hypocritical, how unloving. How could you put me down like that? And so there's this pressure upon Christianity today to conform to this relativistic teaching of the world around us that says you can find God if you go to Muhammad You could find God if you go to Hinduism, Confucianism. You can find God through being an agnostic or an atheist. Every way leads to God. All paths go directly to him. And what we find is that all paths are leading people into a way of lostness. Because there is one way. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The enchanters, the sorcerers, the magicians, the Chaldeans, none of them can offer the king the wisdom that he's seeking. None of them can offer the wisdom that he needs at that moment. In fact, if you look with me at what the enchanters and Chaldeans say to King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 11, the thing that the king asks is too difficult. 
And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not in the flesh. No one can show the king his answers because our gods, they're unconcerned. They're up there and we're down here and, and they've just left us to be. And so what you ask is too difficult because the gods have not revealed the mystery that you seek. But Daniel comes and has a confidence in God that God will reveal the mystery because Daniel sees so much of a bigger plan and purpose behind this than this one moment. Daniel sees that the livelihood of the Jews in Babylon is at stake. There's another false wisdom, and that's karma. Karma. You've heard it to where I just, I, I just want you to have some good karma. Like, if you do good, good will be returned to you. If you do bad, then bad will be returned to you. If you are a terrible person, then terrible things will happen to you because you are a terrible person. Karma, right? It's left the whole world really jacked up because we can't make sense of it. Because why does bad things happen to good people? Why did Jesus die at 33 and why is Hugh Hefner still alive today? Karma doesn't work. Bad things happen to good people. Because the answer to that is that there's an all-controlling God that's working all things for the good of those who love him. And as I, as I say this, I had two friends in the last month who died. One was a man that was about my age with kids about my kid's age. And he was a good and godly man. He served as a missionary in Brazil. And he had a cancer that killed him. And I'm not going to sit before Mark and his wife and his children and say, well, you know, there's just some kind of unconfessed sin in Mark's life. Maybe he did something that nobody knows about. And so somehow this cancer has killed him because he's a bad person. And so therefore, he deserves it. My friend Bo was an older man. But he was a man who regarded God as good and faithful. He was a missionary, even though he was a real estate agent. I, I did his funeral with Pastor Chan from Cross Point Lake Nona on Thursday. And the place was packed out with real estate agents and people that were in the business that regarded his life as a good life, as a testimony of faith and I'm not going to sit before his wife, Susan, and his kids and say, you know what, Bo had it coming to him. You know, when he was 20, he did this or that. If all the bad things caught up with us, friends, none of us would be here today. Karma doesn't work. And karma, this belief in this karma, is a false belief in an ungodly, worldly religion that's man-made. And then there's kind of this Christian view of karma that we have to be careful with, and it's the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. Somehow we can, we can earn from God. The, to think that from a holy God, we can earn from him. If you give God $10, he will give you $100 back. Now here's the problem with that belief, is that if God doesn't come through, then we say, God, you didn't, you didn't come through and you're part of the bargain. 
But as you read the Bible, you don't see any of the words that tell us that these are the promises of God. But God's promises are so far greater and so far more powerful because one of God's promises for Mark and for Bo and for me and for you is that I will never leave you nor forsake you. The God who would send his own son to suffer and die is a God who would allow you suffering and even death to make his name known because that is what is most important. And so there's an ungodly belief in ungodly wisdom that can be pervasive in the church today and we must call ourselves out on it. And we must seek the wisdom from above. And that's what Daniel did. He realized from the moment the knife was at his neck that God had something in place. And even if it would cost him his life, he was going to walk it. And so Daniel turns to his friends. Now, I want you to notice how Daniel turns to his friends. He doesn't turn to his friends and conspire and think of a way to get out of this. He turns to Rack, Shack, and Benny. And he says, seek mercy from God. We don't deserve our lives right now. But we can go before a God who loves us and cares about us. And we seek mercy. That's a huge difference from the gods that the Chaldeans are praying to in verse 11. Because this God is accessible. This God is there. And notice that when Daniel needs wisdom, what does he do? He asks for it in prayer. What's the posture of your soul before God? Is it one of prayer? Is it one of seeking God? You know, the posture of every Christian before a holy and mighty God should be that of humility on our knees. Seeking God and his kingdom first. Can we be a people that is on our knees before God, realizing that he is the one that controls the future, that he is the one that determines our destiny, that he is the one that knows what we do not, and so we are his servants. We are the ones that have been put in place to see that his plan is accomplished, not ours. And that's what Daniel and his friends seek to do. God brings salvation to these people. All the wise men and their families are about to be slaughtered. Lord, help us do something. And they seek God in prayer. Colossians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19 says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. If your first response to calamity, to trial, when the bottom is falling out of your life, is to look for the, the best self-help book to get you out of it, you might find yourself out of that trap, but right into another. The wisdom of God is folly or the, to the world. The wisdom of God is folly to the world, but the foolishness of God is actually wisdom for those who believe in him, those who trust him, those who know 
that their life matters before this mighty king. Daniel and his friends have a God who cares. Verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. God is so good that he reveals himself to us. This is a measure of God's goodness, friends, is that God wants us to know him. He doesn't want God to be divorced from, he, he, he doesn't want his people to be divorced from him. He doesn't want his people to be seeking him where they cannot find him. He wants his people to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is accessible to him. That he is ours and that we are his. And this is who God is, is he's making himself known to his people so that his people will realize that they're going to be okay. Even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of difficulties. And so Daniel, after being revealed the mystery, he praises God. He praises God. Now, if it was me and God revealed the mystery and my life is on the line, I would have hightailed it over to King Nebuchadnezzar at that moment. I would have been like, okay, king, I got it. I got it. I would have been fumbling and stuttering through that mess and saying, oh, blah, blah, blah. but Daniel, he, he waits. Because King Nebuchadnezzar isn't his king. God is his king. Adonai, the one who's in control, the master and commander that's determining all things according to his will. He is the one that's in control. And he is the one that Daniel says, the king can wait I'm before the king. And he praises God. It's such an incredible praise that Daniel gives to the Lord here. He says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever. To whom, all, who, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and season, removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells within him. To you, O God of my Father, I give you praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what, you, what we have asked of you. For you have made known the king's matter. Then he goes to Arioch, and he says, Take me before Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to reveal to him the mysteries that he's been seeking. When's the last time you've praised God for where you're at today? When's the last time you've praised God even in the midst of your greatest difficulties? Daniel could have been complaining to God, God, why would you ever let this happen? God, why would this be like this right now? If you're real, God, why would my world be a mess right now? His world's a mess, but he knows that God is still on the throne. And he praises God. And he goes to Nebuchadnezzar with a confidence that God has revealed to him exactly what he needs to go before Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel has a posture of praise. When we walk in wisdom, we walk in prayer and we walk in praise. 
When we walk in wisdom, we walk in prayer and we walk in praise. Prayer is a declaration that I am not God and God is. Praise is a declaration that this God is ruling over my life. And he deserves all honor and glory. And I am his servant. Daniel goes before King Nebuchadnezzar, not as King Nebuchadnezzar's servant, but a servant of the Most High King. And this is how we, friends, are called to live in light of the testimonies that is given to us in Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one whom God reveals. And we're going to see that. That ultimately, God is on the throne. And wisdom is seated on the throne And this is why Daniel can go before Nebuchadnezzar with great wisdom. Look with me at how Daniel reveals to him this dream. Verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will show the king his interpretation. Then Ariok brought Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known the dream that I have seen and the interpretation? So he's like, I don't want any more of this business of, of you coming to me and say, Tell me the dream, then I'll give you the interpretation. Can you tell me the dream and the interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, astrologers can show the king this mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Do you hear that? There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. There's these questions that rock humanity each and every day, and we don't understand these questions. And these questions seem so far off. Like, what happens when I die? How am I to live in this world? And then there's questions that are even closer to home. What happens if I lose my job? What happens if I can't pay the next bill? But what we see here from Daniel is that God comes through on these things in an incredible way right when Daniel needs it most. Is that God has revealed the mysteries He's made himself accessible to his people. He is showing himself on the throne, ruling and reigning when Daniel needs to see it most and when King Nebuchadnezzar needs to be humbled. Pick it up with me at verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver and thighs of bronze. So what Daniel is doing here is he's revealing the king his dream. And the dream that he sees is a statue. Uh, in, in my own mind, I pictured this as like a, a guy with a beard, so I pictured Pastor Micah. Um, and so standing like this, like really toned and strong and powerful, and his head made of gold, so this paper mache spray-painted gold. Um, anyway, sorry, Micah. Um, that was the first, first thing that came to my mind. Um, but what Daniel begins to reveal in the king's dream is that the, the 
the, there's an answer. And the answer is, is that his kingdom will fall. There's four kingdoms that come into play. And these four kingdoms that Daniel prophesies here through the dreams is the kingdom of gold being Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdom of silver being Medo-Persia, which is Cyrus. The kingdom of bronze, which was later to be Greece and Alexander the Great. And the kingdom that's as strong as iron was the Roman Empire. A kingdom that was mixed with clay. And these kingdoms would then simultaneously crush one another. And as these kingdoms crushed one another, there would actually be another kingdom that would arise and that would crush all the kingdoms of this world and set up rule over all of them. And this is where we see God on the throne because God is the one who is in control of the kings and the kingdoms. God is the one who is in charge of all that seeks to be primary. This is where we see that God's rule crushes the rule of all other kingdoms of this world. And it happened through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the stone cut out of the mountain that crushes all the kingdoms of this dream. Now, I'm not going to get too much into the dream because I believe that in chapter 7, we're going to be able to unpack that in a greater light. If you see chapter 2 and chapter 7, it gets, they, they work simultaneously together. And so we're going to get into some of this apocalyptic, apocalyptic prophecy. And it's going to be fun. But what I want you to see is there's a story behind the story here. And the story behind the story here is Jesus was hung on a Roman cross. The kingdom of iron was the kingdom that thought that they crushed Jesus. But yet it wasn't Rome crushing Jesus on the cross, but Jesus crushing Rome. In 1 Corinthians, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is where the wisdom of God looks like foolishness because why would God send his son to be hung on a Roman cross and executed? A sign of Roman rule and dominion. And why would God allow his son Jesus to endure such hardship? And the wisdom of God is that which makes the wisdom of this world foolish. Because the greatest need of humanity is not the kingdoms of this earth, but it's the kingdom of our soul. Is that our soul would be purchased from death to life. The greatest problems of this life isn't that we would rule and reign now like King Nebuchadnezzar thought. It's that, that we would reign with Christ in all eternity. And this is what God showed to Daniel of people in exile. That though they were in exile, God was building a kingdom. Notice that in the book of Acts, the church through persecution scatters. And you would see it as a very bad thing. A thing that would hurt Christianity. But even when the church was persecuted, what was taking place? It was spreading. 
Their faith went with them. And their faith went throughout the Roman world and absolutely brought hope to people who had no knowledge of God. And in Babylon, this is what God is doing. And he's showing not King Nebuchadnezzar his ultimate plan, but Daniel and the Israelites, that there is a king that is coming that will one day rule and reign. And this is not a God who's, who is far from them, but a God who comes down and meets them right where they're at. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, the word of, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That this God comes down and reveals himself to us. This is what Jesus did. He came to reveal a God who we would have no access to unless he brought us to him. Because Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He was holy. We, friends, are sinners that are deserving of God's wrath and damnation. And Jesus took away the greatest problem that we would ever have. And that's the sin problem. That we are separated from God, deserving his judgment. But Jesus stands in our place and receives the judgment of God on the cross to show us that there is a king that's on the throne. Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of this passage, realizes that there's a king on the throne. But it's short-lived. He says, yeah, there's a God. And there's a God who rules, and he pays homage to that God. But ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar goes back to living for himself. Why does he do that? Because he's Lord, but not Lord. There's so many times where we'll just flippantly acknowledge that God is Lord, but we won't acknowledge him as Lord over our life. We'll go on with business as usual. But what we see in Jesus is that Jesus cannot be Lord without being Lord of our hearts. And that's the question that we ask today is, is he Lord over your heart and your life Is he Lord over every aspect of your life? Do you trust him when the going gets tough enough to pray to him, enough to praise him, enough to exalt him? When we do our personal Bible study application, one of the things that we ask, and if you get those little blue cards, there's a question at the end of the application is, what promises can we hold on to? And what we see in this chapter are many promises that we can hold on to from God. This passage reveals to us so much about God that we can cling to. In chapter 2, verse 18, we see that God is the God of heavens. In chapter 2, verse 19, he is the one who reveals mystery. Verse 20, wisdom and power belong to him. Verse 21, he's the one who changes times and seasons. Verse 21 and 37 and 38, he removes kings and establishes them. Verse 22, he reveals the profound and hidden mysteries. 
Verse 22, again, he knows what is in the darkness and only light dwells in him. Verse 44, he is setting up a kingdom that will not be shaken, one which will destroy all other kingdoms. And from the mouth of King Nebuchadnezzar himself, verse 47, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Is this the Lord that's reigning over your life? Is this the Lord that's revealing to you the deep and hidden things of God? And are you seeking this from him? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you show us what we don't know. In order, God, that we can walk in knowledge. Knowledge and security that, Lord, you're leading. You're guiding God, right now in the silence, pray that you'll speak to us. I pray that our posture would be one of worship before you here today. That we would acknowledge that we're your servants. And that God, you have made known to us yourself. And that we would find our place before you. God, would we realize, Jesus, that you have done all things according to your will and you've cared for us right there in the middle. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.